0: 36, hear God's word to you, his beloved children. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, your word is food to us. And yet we need your Holy Spirit to open these words, open our minds, open our hearts to apply these words to us, that they would be life. And so uh, we look to you to be our teacher and that you would uh, transform my words and make them the words that my brothers and sisters here need to hear. So uh, show us your kindness, your love, your challenge as we uh, give our minds and hearts to your holy word. We ask now... In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we are about a month into a, a series that we're going to be in, uh, right, leading right up to Easter, where we're going to be looking at these, uh, these chapters uh, in the book of Matthew about leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And every week, we're going to be talking about a different aspect of what does the cross mean? You know, the cross is, of course, central to the Christian faith. Jesus died on the cross. But what does it mean? And, you know, that's actually a difficult question to answer. What does the cross mean? Because there's so many answers to it. It's so deep. It's so rich. It's so multi-layered. And so, you know, a few weeks ago we found that, oh, the cross is God's most profound answer to the problem of evil. You know, how can there be a good God and evil in the world? The cross has... Deep answers to that. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw how the cross is God's offer of forgiveness to the world for their sins. Huge, important part of, of what the cross means. This morning, we're going to be talking about the cross as Jesus' great act of obedience. And you saw that there in verse 39, this famous prayer that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. And that's, that's really what obedience is. Obedience is an ordering of our desires. And ordering our desires in such a way that we say what God purposes, what God intends, what God desires, what God has commanded for my life, is first in the order and that my desires follow after, our second. That ordering is what obedience is about. And, you know, obedience, the whole topic is actually a topic that our culture is very suspicious of. You know, obey. You know, whether it's the church that's saying that people should obey or that, uh, the, uh, you know, God says we should obey. Or pastors of the Bible say that we should obey. Because, you know, in our culture we say obedience it sounds like something that's like a straitjacket, right? That, you know, God wants to get control of my life and he doesn't want me to kind of, my life to run free and wild. He wants to get control over me or the church wants to get control of me. They want me to obey. And so, you know, for example, if you watch pretty much any movie, you know, what are we looking for in the heroes in our movies? Is that they followed their dreams no matter what. That, you know, that they fulfilled their dreams, and no matter what obstacle came, came, they followed their heart to the very end. And if you do that, you are heroic. And of course, here we come to this passage, and Jesus is doing the opposite thing. He's uh, saying, uh, uh, he says to his father, everything in me does not want this calling and this suffering, but not my will, but yours be done. The the cross, it was Jesus' remarkable act of obedience to his Father. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the dynamics of obedience. And I want to unpack this passage for us by answering three questions. And this is what they are. First of all, what is obedience? When God calls us to obey, what is that going to look like? What should we expect that that looks like? What is obedience? Second, what do I need for obedience? What grace does God give me in order to enable me to obey? And then the third thing is then when I do obey, what does obedience do to me? How does obedience transform our lives? Three profound, important questions that are answered in a profound way in this passage. So, three questions, and the first is this. What is obedience? Now, the first thing I want to say is that obedience to the Bible generally is a happy thing. You know, when God says you should keep the Sabbath, right? You shouldn't work seven days. You should only work six days. And make sure you take one day where you spend time with God, eat some good food, spend time with your friends, and don't even think about your work. You know, do that. If you obey that, it's going to be a happy life. You're going to, you know, it's a good thing. It's what we were made for because God made us so he knows how we were meant to function. But, you know, this passage gives us a kind of obedience that you might call a hard obedience. Jesus is being called to go die on the cross. And I want to highlight a couple insights about a hard obedience from this passage. What is obedience? Well, first, obedience in this passage looks like emotional distress, Obedience looks like emotional distress. It's probably one of the most striking things about this passage is here's God become a man in Jesus. And uh, and he experiences an intense uh, amount of uh, emotional distress here as he approaches the cross. Look at what verse 37 says. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, as Jesus was approaching the cross, Jesus was not stone faced. He was not kind of this fearless, you know, just, you know, fearless resolve. He was not emotionless. He was almost overcome with emotion. And so obedience in the Bible, important thing, is that obedience to the Bible is not a Stoic obedience. You know, uh, the Stoics in the, the a- ancient Greeks and actually many Eastern philosophies kind of view obedience in this way or discipline life is that we should have a, a, a deep dis- uh, we should, not, we should have a detachment to the world around us. That we should not have longings for you know, comfort and for happiness or hope for the future about our lives. Because if you have hope for the future, what's going to happen is you're going to be disappointed. And then you're going to experience suffering. And so if you just don't let yourself hope or long for things, then you're just going to be kind of uh, not attach your heart to things. Then you're not going to be disappointed. And they would say to live a dis- disciplined life, you need to keep yourself away from attachment. Jesus was not that way. He was clearly not stoic. He experienced a profound emotional distress as he sought to obey his Father. And I think um, many of us think that what a life, if you were to obey God, it would look like having your emotions under control. You know, that you feel confident, that you'd feel purposeful, that you feel clear-headed. And so, you know, let me give you an example. You know, for some of you, if... You know, the Bible gives many commands about uh, experiencing reconciliation. You know, if you have a conflict with someone, especially someone in the church, you're supposed to go and talk to them. And like, or if they sinned against you, you go tell them you sinned against me and, you know, we need to work this out. And some of you, you know, might be horrified by that idea. And oh, when someone, I don't want to have a conflict, you know, I'd rather just not talk to them. Or, you know, I'd, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a fight with them. But to lovingly engage a conversation it just it fills me with fear to go and have a conversation. And so you might think that, you know, people who do resolve conflict... They're just very confident, they know what they're going to say when they go into the conversation, they're just relationally very sure of themselves, and that's why they're able to do that. That's not true. There's no one like that. Everyone, when they enter into a conflict, their body feels seized up with fear, they're not sure what words are going to come out of their mouth, and what obedience looks like, it says, I'm going to take this body that is in emotional distress, that I'm thinking about all kinds of things in my head, I don't know what I'm going to say, I'm going to take my body, and I'm going to put it in the conversation, and I'm going to trust God and see what he does. And so obedience, if you think that obedience means, you know, I need to get my emotions under control before I act obediently, you're kidding yourself, it's not going to happen. That's not what obedience even looked like for Jesus. It's not going to look that way for us. Okay, So the first first insight is obedience involves emotional distress. And emotional distress does not mean that you can't obey God. But the second thing is that obedience in this passage is also a passive suffering. And what I mean by that, you know, historically theologians have said that uh, Jesus had two kinds of obedience when he obeyed God. There was his active obedience. Jesus' act of obedience was, you know, he lived a perfect life that was sinless. He loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself, and he he lived this perfect life. He did the commands of God. And then they said there was also the passive obedience of Jesus, where he took our curse upon himself on the cross. He received God's will, this curse, and he received it. And passive obedience is not necessarily how we think of obedience when we hear that word. You know, when you hear of obedience, you think about God's given certain rules, and you need to do the rules. He's given you these commandments, and you do the commandments. But Jesus, in this passage, is not really doing something. Look at at verse 39 again, that uh, that important prayer. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Jesus is receiving God's sovereign will for his life. He's drinking the cup that has been appointed for him. That's what obedience looks like. And you know, for many of us here, the most important obedience we will do in our life is not actually an obedience to a command, It's going to be an experience you're going to walk through. It's going to be something you didn't ask for. It's going to be a sorrow. And it's going to be a time of deep confusion and emotional distress. And the question is going to be, are you going to run away? Are you going to curse God? Are you going to find relief in some sin? Or will you wait for the Lord and say to him, your will be done. I trust you are good and your plan is good, even if I... Can't see it right, and in many ways, that's that's a that's a whole different kind of obedience. It's a trust in what God is doing. You trust in the story that God is writing with my life. And so, what is obedience? First of all, you see two things. Obedience often looks like emotional distress. It's not stoic, kind of like stone-faced, and I'm invincible. Confidence is trust God, even when my emotional life is in complete turmoil, and and then it, um, it's also passively receiving, saying to God, "Thy will be done. Whatever your purposes are, they may be mysterious to me. I trust that they are good." Now, for some of you, you might say, wow, okay, actually, that kind of obedience is a lot harder than the list. You know, if there's just a list of things I need to do and check them off, I could probably do that. But receiving God's mysterious sovereign will and, and walking through distress that he might appoint for my life and trust that his purposes are good, that's like, how could I ever do that? I'm not even sure I could do that. You know, my emotions are so powerful. And so this leads to a second question for this passage, is not just, What is obedience? What should we expect it to look like? But what do we need for obedience? And we see a few important answers in this passage. First thing we see we need is we need community. And, you know, a major portion of this text where Jesus is praying in the garden is his interaction with the disciples. And, you know, he particularly brings his three closest disciples. Friends, the disciples, Peter, and then the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. They're his most intimate friends. And he says that, I want you with me. And you see there in the end of verse 38, this is what he says to them. He says, watch with me. Just stay awake. Just be there. I'm about to go to the cross, and I want someone there who's alert and who's with me. And Jesus wanted human companionship as he was called to this act of beatitude. He didn't want to be alone. Which tells us that if God himself, when God becomes a man and has to obey God, if he needs other people there, if he's going to be able to walk through it, if he needs it, I can guarantee you, you need it as well. When you are facing a passive obedience where you have to say to God, thy will be done, you will often want to run away and be alone. Right? Because you know, if you're in emotional turmoil, right, and there's emotional distress, you're like, I don't know what I'm going to say to people. I'm probably going to, maybe I'm going to talk too much and gush too much about what I'm going through, and it's hard for me to interact and be social. And so maybe it'd just be easy if I just isolate myself and I just be alone. But you will not endure alone. You will not be able to hold fast alone. One of the most important graces God gives you to be able to obey him is other people. You need them present. You need a community. But, you know, it's interesting. Many of you may resonate with that. You say, yeah, oh, I like community. But what's interesting about this passage, Jesus said, yeah, I need my friends near me. And yet, of course, his friends failed him. Right? I mean, that's one of the main things here. They've... They were falling asleep. They couldn't stay awake. They weren't with him. They weren't encouraging him. And, you know, that often happens is that we have this actually, gosh, I need, you know, goodness, I need uh, uh, um, community in my life, but those, they can't really come through from me. They can't give me everything that I need in order to walk with the Lord and to be with him. And oftentimes they won't be there. And so that's why, of course, we need a second thing for, for obedience. Not just we need community, we also need Prayer. We need to be able to talk to God. And just, you know, this passage is kind of structured around these three events. You know, three times the disciples fall asleep. And then three times it says that Jesus prayed, right? Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. In verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed. For the third time, saying the same words again, uh, and um, I think for many of us, we imagine that you know, if I had a perfect group of friends that would walk with me, I could live an obedient life. I could do that, you know, if they were there. And so we are very eager about finding a community and finding ways to, find, to learn about community. How do I be a part of a community? Put myself out there to find a community. But are we as eager to learn to talk to our Father in prayer? To talk to him? To go to him? To learn how to pray? And of course, you know, prayer is an act of trust. It's where we learn to trust. You know, even that prayer to say to God, thy will be done... Whatever you bring in my life, I trust you. That saying that prayer is an act of trust. And that, because prayer is an act of trust, it's one of the reasons, one of the things that is a deep conviction of our church is that every week, one of the things that we're hoping to communicate as a church is the goodness of God. Because the reason we take control of our own lives or we isolate ourselves is because we do not trust in the goodness of God. It's hard for us to say, thy will be done. We say, you know what, I want my will done and because I don't trust your will is good. I think you probably want to hurt me. Or maybe I think you want to put me in a straitjacket, and you don't want me to have freedom. and You don't want goodness to run wild in my life. And so I'm going to take control of my own life. And so we need to hear over and over again that God is good. He actually knows us better than we know ourselves. He's far better than, than we are. His dream for our lives is far deeper and far more beautiful than ours is. And the reason that we don't obey God is not because we don't know the rules. I mean, probably most of you already know you should be in a community and you should be praying, right? It's not that we don't know the rules. It's that in our hearts, we have not been able to trust that God walks with us and God knows us and trust in his goodness. And so prayer is about us learning that goodness. Now, I need to pause here for a moment. Because so far, what have we said this passage is about? Well, obedience looks like emotional distress. And saying that God is going to bring experiences into our lives that we, don't, we may not have asked for. And he's going to call us to walk through them and say to him, thy will be done. And so we need to get in a community and we need to pray. And what all of that is saying is that who am I in this text? Who am I supposed to be like in this text? Jesus, right? We're supposed to, he's an example for us. But when we read this text, where are, who should we identify with really in this text? Should we be identifying with Jesus? I think probably verse 40 is more who we identify with, right? And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? I mean, probably most of us say, yeah, I can't pray for an hour straight. I think I, I'm more like Peter. And, and then he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so actually, who we are in this story is we're not Jesus. We are the disciples. We're the ones who, can't, who are, don't know how to pray. We're the ones whose flesh is, is weak. And you know, I was thinking about this when I I was preparing for this passage. You know, just imagining—you know—what if Jesus wasn't a part of the Christian movement? It was just the disciples. What would have happened? (laughs) Nothing. We wouldn't even have known they ever existed. It would, have been, it would not even be recorded in history that they existed based on their, their obedience. And yet, they got to be a part of this world-changing movement of the kingdom of God coming. And they, they got to share in that. And why was it? It wasn't because of their obedience. It was because of his obedience. He obeyed the Father, and it's like they got to follow after him and share in it, even when they're falling asleep, even when you know, they're, uh, they're saying that they don't even know him and they're running away from him when he's going to finally go to the cross. And so when we ask the question, what do we need for obedience? Yes, we need community. Yes, we need prayer. But the only way that we become obedient, one, obedient ones is in Jesus, because he is the obedient one. And, you know, that's what the Gospel says. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived in our place. That was his active obedience for us. Jesus died the death that we should have died. That was his passive obedience for us as a gift. And ultimately what we need, actually far more than looking at Jesus as an example of obedience, is we need him as our representative, our king, who is obedient for us. And what's going to happen is actually many of us are going to obey God. Many of us are going to experience sorrows in our lives that we will walk through. You will walk through them. And you will uh, trust God. And you will learn to pray. But that's not because you're heroic. It's not because you're strong. It's because you are in Christ and he is in you. And it will be by grace. And you will know that it was the obedient one who saw you through it because he had walked that path before you. And so this is what we have so far, is that obedience is maybe something you didn't picture. You picture obedience as doing a list of rules, and it turns out it is trusting God in, in the midst of emotional distress. And, and the only way you can do that is with a community and learning to speak to your Father, but ultimately by being bound to Jesus by faith. But There's one last question that I want to look at from this passage that I think has an interesting answer, and this is, What does obedience do to me? When my life is uh, characterized by obedience, what happens? And two important things that we see in this is that, first of all, obedience makes us see our own lives. It is through obedience that you learn who you are, learn about yourself. And you know, Jesus, in this passage, he already knew that he was going to die. It's kind of interesting. He's praying, Father, can I not go to the cross? But he's already predicted multiple times that he's going to die on the cross. He knows he's going to die on the cross. And so what's happening in this scene is that Jesus is emotionally coming to terms with his calling and purpose. And I think actually in this passage you see that Jesus goes through a a transformation. And you can see it in the two prayers. Look at the first prayer in verse 39. Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he has this hope that, you know, maybe I don't have to go to the cross. Is, there, is it possible that maybe I don't have to go to the cross? And then you get to verse 42, and the, the prayer changes. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. He now knows the prayer has changed him. He's come to terms that this must happen. He's gained, he's gained clarity about his own purpose and his calling. It's deepened his resolve that he's ready to say, there's, I know there's no way. This is your purpose for me. And I'm resolved to give myself to it. When we don't run away from God and our suffering, this is what it does to us, is we realize what our calling is. And you know, our culture is going to say, you know, God telling you to obey is... You know, you need to discover who you are, and if God calls you to obey, you're, you're going to be who God says you are and not who you say you are. But the Bible says that God made us. He knows who we are far better than we know ourselves, and it is only, we actually don't even know who, our own hearts or what we're created for or what our purpose is. And it is often through sorrow and distress that who we really are emerges, that God, you know, like a furnace, like burns away the dross, and the purity of who God intended us to be emerges. And God is showing us who we are, and it is through obedience that we learn not only who God is, but who we are and what our purpose and what our life is about and what our passions are about and what God's called us to. And so obedi- obedience makes us see ourselves, but there's one other thing that I want to point out from this passage is that obedience also makes us see our future. It makes us long for our future. And look at verse 45. Verse 45. It says, then he came to the disciples and said to them, See, uh, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the hour at hand, you know, it's that dramatic language that Jesus says, the the, the hour where God is going to act is now here. And where that's coming from in Jesus' kind of imagination is that Jesus, from the Old Testament, that, that language of the hour comes from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, there's this promise in Daniel 12 that I want to read to you where it talks about the hour. This is what Daniel says. At that time, or hour in the Greek Old Testament, that's what it uses the same word hour. In that hour shall arise Michael, the great prince who is in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. And Jesus is saying, the time of trouble is now I'm going to the cross. Such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. The hour is when the trouble comes and those who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise up. This amazing promise that the love of God will so come into this world that death will be reversed and the bodies of the dead will come to life. He will heal his creation of sin. And Jesus has that in in an imagination of his future, and it turns out he knows that when he goes to the cross, the beginning of that rebirth, the beginning of that healing, the beginning of the reversal of death will happen in him. The Christian hope for the future is so immensely wild that God would heal human life and that we could have a share in that. Our longing for God's kingdom to come is deepened through obedience. And we say, I long for that day when Jesus will come. And the promise of the gospel is that in Christ, not only do we learn obedience, but in Christ, we have a share in the future that is begun in Him. Let's pray together.